0: Alright, we started into a subject a little bit, Sabbath, in terms, and I'm going to try not to hold you too late on these evening things, uh, but we have time to develop this thing uh, about who, what, why, where, when, and how, uh, what we're doing here, uh, why are we here, why aren't we somewhere else, and so on. And, uh, we went into Zechari- uh, to uh, Revelation primarily there in Revelation 1 and then in chapter 5, showing that uh, in the end time, at the end of times, as John was projecting into the future there, that there would be uh, seven candlesticks, which represented seven churches, and that there would be seven angels or seven spirits with those, And I discussed somewhat that there were seven on a mail route there in in, uh, Asia Minor at the time, which uh, were a good analogy to use because Paul traveled to those, and that it does appear that they went nose to tail through history up until this end time, when we had probably some connection with Sardis, and then were part of Philadelphia, and then became Laodicea as a whole. Uh, But there's more to the story, and I think that it is imperative that we understand that. And most of the church uh, does not, and probably could not understand it. Uh, There are some here and there that do believe that there is an end-time fulfillment of all seven churches at the end time. In fact, I did a series of articles on it uh, when I was in CGG that were in the Forerunner uh, showing internal proof from the Bible that all seven would exist at the end. And I think fairly conclusively prove that, but I think we'll go into it probably a little bit deeper here, maybe not all those things, but a little deeper here with some very abundant proof that that is indeed the case that there was a fulfillment through history, and now that there is an end-time fulfillment that has all seven existing at once, just as they existed in the days of Paul, all at once. Uh, In fact, the fact that they all existed at that time would lend credence to the idea that since they were all there at once, they might all be here at once. But it doesn't leave out the idea that there may have been a fulfillment through time as well. But well, let's go to Zechariah, and we'll we'll address that as we get into this a little further. I, I want to address it uh, in beginning with chapter one first, because I think we need to see ourselves in what is going on here in the end times with what God is doing. I've mentioned before, and I'll bring it up again, that the first sermon John Reitenbaugh gave when he was started the Church of the Great God, was entitled, Do You See God in Your Life? And I feel that that was a very pivotal sermon and a very important one. It's certainly a very important concept. And it doesn't matter whether we might be in United or living or at home on our living room couch or here or wherever we might be in the Church of God. It is imperative that we be able to find God, to know God, and to see Him in our life. If we have had our minds opened to the truth of God, the basic doctrines, we become a baptized part of the bride of Christ to be, the 144,000, or the first fruits. Several different names might apply. If we are counted among that number, wherever we may be, we had best find God. And we had best find where we fit in His plan and His purpose. Because we all do. And it doesn't mean that in doing that, we need to lift ourselves above anyone else, whoever we might be, whether here or someone somewhere else. None of us are any better than anyone else. We need to comprehend and grasp that and fully understand it. But God has different purposes from different people, or for different people. I think if you would examine the lives of Peter and James and John and Paul and the other apostles, I don't think that reading through here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, some of them not original apostles, but writers, I don't think you would find that one was better than another, or necessarily more important than another. They all had different functions. Uh, Peter apparently was appointed the head, uh, Mr. Armstrong argued at times that James was, since he was at uh, Jerusalem as a head apostle. But Peter was the one that made the final decision. He and Paul, and then James said, we'll go with that. Uh, so there's some confusion, but he did seem to tell Peter he was the, the lead guy there in Matthew 16:18. But in retrospect, looking at it now, Everything I read in Peter's writings is important. Everything I read in James's writing is very important. Uh, and Paul's and so on. So they, they had different functions, whatever they might have been, and we might argue what was what. And it really doesn't matter. The point is, they all had a function. And we all do too. Now, he may have a different function for each one of the different groups. Because God scattered it, and He allowed the different groups to be, for whatever reasons. And if all seven churches exist at the end, then they're all the churches of God, are they not? They may have different levels of understanding here, here, there, or somewhere else. They may feel they have a different function or calling, and indeed they may. But that's for each to figure out. I think it's important for us to figure out for ourselves what this is all about. And all those six questions about ourselves need to be answered. And that's what I want to attempt to do here, because I think it, A, can be encouraging and strengthening if we have a better vision and view of what God has here for us and what we're doing, what it's all about, And it could also help us perhaps even understand better what our strengths and weaknesses are so that we might be able to strengthen our weaknesses and maximize the strengths that we may have. In other words, become more efficient in what it is that God's purpose is for us and get done what He wants us to do. So, this is a critical issue for everyone, everywhere. But we can't speak for anyone but ourselves, so we need to define things for ourselves, since that's all we can do, and all we really should do. We can't make judgments on others. Now, we might see in the Scriptures uh, certain things that God says that they don't see, and we may say, hey, I think they're missing something. But it doesn't do any good to put them down. All it does us any good to do is try to do the best job we can with the job we've been given. And then they have to do the best job they can with whatever their purpose is. So I want to clarify some things, perhaps and, and I, I think I did this some in a Bible study some time back. But maybe I should address it a little bit from that standpoint before we get to these Scriptures. Uh, or would it be better to go to the Scriptures first and then address that? Let's go to the Scriptures first. I think we know in Haggai, we've been there quite a few times, that here in the end time, we are to... Build the temple. Now, there are two levels in which that may be important. We understand that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We understand that we are to build with the right kind of materials, spiritually speaking, and that the church, on a larger sense than our own specific human body, is also the temple. So on two levels, God considers the temple, our personal temple that we're building in His honor, and the overall temple that we all comprise of the church. Uh, He speaks of Zion and Jerusalem as the church there in Hebrews 12. Uh, We haven't gone there in a while. I'll I'll come back there right quickly and review that because he pulls a lot of things together in there, and I know I've used it a lot, so you probably know it about as well as I do, but I I think it's important to consider that in what we're doing here, because I want us to see biblical basis for why we're here and what we're doing, and who we are. Here in verse 21, And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake, And that's when he was standing before Mount Sinai and the uh, fire and thunder and lightning and power was coming out of Sinai. So he was very afraid. He says, that was fearful, but you are come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. So there's a physical Jerusalem, There's a city here, Jerusalem. There's Mount Zion, physically. But here he's talking about a city coming down from heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem described in Revelation 21 as it comes down, and to an innumerable company of angels. So the whole spirit world that's about God's throne is involved here. This is who we come before. Then he says, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. So these things all equate. They're all tied together here. Aren't we supposed to be a part of the 144,000, which are the bride of Christ, who come down with Christ when the new Jerusalem comes down there in Revelation 21? So he ties the church together with these heavenly things because... We're going to go to the throne of God, be there for a year on the honeymoon, and then come back. As Christ told Peter there, you can't go with me now, but you will come later. We, You know, we always believed we'd never go to heaven. Well, Christ said right there, where I'm going, he was headed for heaven. He said, you can't come now, but you'll come later. Why did we overlook that? because we were fighting the doctrines of the Protestants so you don't go to heaven when you die. So you'd read over that, and, and it didn't fit the mindset. But now that we understand better what's happening at the end, that scripture fits right in when you run across it. No problem. So, to the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the Judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. And to Emmanuel, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Uh, We did the Passover with his blood, which was better than the blood of lambs and goats that Abel sprinkled. So we're in the top echelons, brethren. You know, you look at society here and the culture of our nation and this world, And you have those who are at the top of things, the wealthy, the educated, and so on. Uh, They're the important people in our society or culture. They're the ones that people watch their lives and what they do and and how much money they make and where they build houses and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But God took the weak in the base, us, who were nothing in this world and its society, and he has put us in the upper echelon, the very top of his society, his culture, of the true new world order to come. He speaks of those things that are not as if they already were. So we should take this as great encouragement that he's called out this kind of people. And he's already placed us here saying, "If you, this is who you're coming before. And this is who you're part of. And he fully anticipates that we're going to be there. So, we understand that we're to be building a spiritual temple. We understand that we're to be building spiritual Jerusalem. Uh, That we've understood for a long time. Now, what about a physical temple? What about the physical Jerusalem? That's a question that's On my radar now, and I think that there's a very good chance that that also needs to be done, that it has to be fulfilled both physically and spiritually. And I think we can show scriptures to indicate that. But the whole book of Haggai, after Zephaniah, where it talks about the crash and getting away and obeying God and being meek and humble before Him and working, it starts telling us about the job to do in the book of Haggai. And it says, people say it's not time to do that. There will be that attitude that it's not time to do that. Now, I think he's talking about church people here because who else would this be addressing? It's addressing Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two witnesses, and the remnant of God's church is who it's addressing. Talking directly to them. And it says, this people, not the world, not the Jews out there, this people say it's not time to build a temple. Now there's your first clue that this could be speaking not only of a spiritual temple, but a physical temple. Because I don't think there's anybody in the church anywhere, whatever part of it they are involved in, who would say we're not supposed to be building a spiritual temple. Right? They all know. We all knew in Worldwide that our body was the temple of the Spirit and we should be building it. We all knew that the church represented the temple and it had to be built. So a spiritual temple was never a question among God's people. But now, if it comes time to build a physical temple there will be questions. There will be people to say, it's not time to do that. That doesn't need to be done. I can guarantee you that will be said if we address this issue. Do you see the point here? It's only a physical one that they would question. A spiritual one, they would not. And then he talks about our our money, the physical things. We eat and drink and aren't full and we earn money and it's like having a hole in your pocket. It doesn't seem to go anywhere. And if you think it's bad now, it's going to get a whole lot worse as they keep making trillions and trillions more money and the dollar will buy less and less and less with inflation. So it's talking about this time. It says, well, everybody runs to their own house and they won't build my house. Well, which house do they run to? Their physical house. They won't build his physical house. I think there's a, a good point that could be made right here. And this is only an opening salvo. There's a great deal more. But consider that. Anyway, he had called for a drought, and there has been a spiritual drought. But now it's beginning to turn into a physical one, where... Food shortages are beginning to appear, and now they're passing a law in the United States Congress that you can't even grow a garden. H.R. 875, I think it is. And there's two or three more attached to it. It's not passed yet, but they're working hard on it. Does that sound like a government for the people? You know? And the dairymen are about to go out of business. The government's thinking of paying them for the lifetime production of a cow and then letting them slaughter the cow and get the money from that in order to shut down the dairies and get the price of milk sky high. It's gone down recently, and the dairymen can't make a living. So, we've had a spiritual famine, and we're about to enter physical famine. Well, these people in ten cities already are beginning to feel it. And around the world, they're really beginning to feel it where millions are dying. Anyway, God said He'd be with them if the remnant was coming. He said He would stir them up to come. So, God wants His spiritual temple, and very likely a physical temple built, And He's going to stir people from around the world. They're going to come and work in that temple. Now, this was mentioned here in Haggai in the second year of King Darius. Let me, uh, as a sidelight, give you an addendum here in the book of Daniel. Uh, Remember, I was saying here recently that uh, based on some research that Vicky Romhill had done and some things that I had seen as well from Josephus and Herodotus and, and various ones that uh that Ahasuerus, who married Esther in the book of Esther, their son was the one who may have been the one who told him to go and authorized him to build a temple. Like, no wonder I can't find Daniel. I went forward instead of back. Uh there's been some confusion about Cyrus, Darius, and so on among scholars. But notice here in Daniel. Where, which chapter was it? Eight? No. Chapter nine, verse one. Daniel here had uh, an understanding. Reading from the reading the book of Jeremiah, but he says, "In the first year of Darius, who some scholars believe was Cyrus the Great, the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the seed of the Medes." Now the scholars may look at the different uh, papyri and, and various things they find over in Iran or Iraq. And have questions and argue among themselves, but right here in the Bible, Daniel was involved with the son of Ahasuerus and Esther. So, the plot thickens a great deal on the importance and the meaning of the book of Esther and why Kurim is a deliverance of the end-time people, not just a deliverance of those physical Jews back there. Because Ahasuerus and his son are brought forward into the book of Daniel, to Daniel, toward the end of Daniel, which is indeed an end-time book. And the Bible itself confirms that the son of Ahasuerus was a king that Daniel dealt with. Exactly what his function is uh, perhaps might remain to be seen, but Uh, Herodotus, and Josephus, and some of those people, the Jewish scholars may have indeed been correct, but it was the son of Ahasuerus and Esther who allowed the Jews to go build the temple. And if anybody builds a temple today, and it's the temple of God, it will be the spiritual Jews, it will not be the physical Jews. They have been divorced, they have had all authority taken away from them by Christ, and they no longer are a spiritual factor with God at all. Christ said, I will not, not have anything to do with you until you accept those whom I have sent. I have taken the power from you and given it to them. That's Matthew 18 or 19, somewhere right in there. So if there's a physical temple to be done, it has to be by God's spiritual temple, who build a physical temple for God. Now the Jews can build themselves a temple over there if they want to, but it won't be God's temple, it'll be the Jews' temple. We need to understand that. If anybody's going to build it, it's going to have to be you and others that God calls together to do it as a remnant. Anyway, I thought that was a very interesting thing that I just happened to run across in Daniel. I hadn't noticed it before. So, going on down here in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Eternal of Hosts. So, where does that fit in? I had read this book. Many, many times over the last 13 years, and it's only been more recently that I understood perhaps why he talks about the silver and the gold here, because it just breaks in in the middle of the context and doesn't seem to have any relevance to the rest of what's written in the book. Except, and unless, it applies to the temple. Now, gold and silver could be words of God if you want to spiritualize it away, but it could very well be that if a physical temple is to be built, that the silver and the gold and the vessels of the temple have to be found and have to be available, and that they do indeed belong to God. And He will use them to His glory. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, says the eternal Host. And in this place will I give peace, says the Eternal of hosts. So, whatever he's talking about here, the latter temple has to be far greater than the former temple. And he says back at the beginning of this chapter, uh, verse 3, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory, and how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison as nothing? And he said that there would be Old men, uh, let's see, I guess that's in another place. But who is left among you who saw it? Uh, Where is that? There's another one that says that there'd be old men. I think that's in toward the end of Zechariah. That there'd be old men who saw the former in comparative to the latter. Pardon? It's in Ezra, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, In Ezra 3.12. In fact, I've got it right here in my margin. But there'd be old men. So, whatever he's talking about here is an end-time fulfillment, because Haggai is absolutely an end-time book. Ezra and Nehemiah, you might say, are historical records, but Haggai and Zechariah are end-time prophecies, so they're not talking about what happened back there. So, whatever happens here in the end-time church, something has to happen first And something happens later that eclipses it by far and is far greater in majesty than what came before. Now understand that a beautiful building was built in Pasadena. It was a gorgeous building for those of you who saw it. Still is. And a spiritual temple was built, the church. But we know the story, don't we? We know that it became lackadaisical and had to be blown to pieces. So therefore, what comes afterward has to far exceed what came before. And I've made this point many times, but in a kind of a review and putting this story together, we need to address this again here. What I was in Worldwide... And what anybody else was there was not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. Now that's good enough for a lot of people who are in the church today. They just want to rebuild worldwide and make it back like it was. And they think that's all that's needed. Why did God blow it apart if it was sufficient? And why does He say here in this end time book that something must come along which is far greater than that which came before. As a spiritual temple, we have to be put together and have more of God's Spirit, more of His mind, more of His attitude by far than any of us had in the past. We have to grow. We have to go beyond what we were. We cannot afford to settle back like we were before. We have to far excel what we were. The glory has to be much greater. Okay, then he says we better separate the clean from the unclean. And then in the ninth and twenty-fourth day of the year that he would bless us. That's when this was written. Whether it has an end time uh, importance, I guess, remains to be seen. But this was in the second year of Darius that Haggai was written. And there in Daniel 9, uh, it was the first year of Darius that Daniel mentions that the son of Ahasuerus was involved. So, chances are, we're talking about the son of Ahasuerus and Esther right here in Haggai. Uh, Daniel 9 also, and we may get to that a little later on, but the fact that that's mentioned at the beginning of Daniel 9, if you remember, the story of the 70 weeks prophecy and of the, the abomination of desolation after the walls of Jerusalem are built is in that chapter. So there's a definite tie between rebuilding Jerusalem And King Ahasuerus' son, and the story in Haggai and Zechariah, which were written in the second year of Darius. So Daniel understood the 70 years there in uh, Daniel 9. He understood by reading Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah 25. He understood from reading those scriptures that there would be a 70 year captivity. There was a prophet there that said, oh, it's going to be a short captivity, don't build houses. Jeremiah said, no, it's going to be a long, house, long one, build houses, make farms, whatever. You're going to be here 70 years. So Daniel read that. Then he addressed it in Daniel 9, and he said, I understood from reading Jeremiah that 70 years are accomplished, and then God's people are going to be released to go back and build a temple, Right? Is it only happenstance then that the very next year Haggai addresses this? Because at that point they were being released to go build the temple after 70 years. The story begins to come together here, and I've never put that together before. So, the same thing is being addressed in Daniel 9 in the first year of Darius, that's being addressed in Haggai and Zechariah in the second year of Darius. And that there would be opposition. So God asked for volunteers to get the job done. Now let's be sure we understand that this is not ancient history because it says in verse 21, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and we will see shortly that bell is one of the two witnesses, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdom of the heathen. I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, and when he uses that expression, he's generally talking about the coming of the day of the Lord says the Eternal of hosts, will I take you, o Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Eternal, and I will make you as a signet, a signet, a banner, an example to the world. For I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. So we'll find in Zechariah 4, combined with uh, Revelation 11, that Zerubbabel is one of the two witnesses at the end time, and God is going to make Zerubbabel a signet over the nations. So, this is not ancient history. This story of building the temple in the book of Haggai is an end time job done by Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant of the people. That should become quite clear when we understand Revelation, Zechariah, and Daniel. So, we're just going through here showing what must be done. Now, Zechariah was written, uh, he started writing during the middle of the time that Haggai was writing the book of Haggai. So, Zechariah comes right out of the middle of Haggai, if you will, in terms of time. This is in the 8th month, the second year of Darius. Same year, uh, I think it was the 6th month, wasn't it, Haggai started writing? Yeah, the 6th month, the 7th, 8th, and ninth, he was still writing. And in the 8th month, Zechariah began writing this. And he tells us to turn to God, which is what we read throughout the Scriptures at the end time. Turn to Him with our whole heart. Because we, as a church overall, had become sin, and it was half-heartedness that's the problem. Both in His Word and in doing His Word. So, He says, turn to Me, and I will turn to you, says He, Eternal the Post, verse 3 of chapter 1. And not to be like our fathers, unto the, who the prophets cried and they wouldn't listen, But He wants us to listen and to turn from our evil doings. I think it's good that we focus on that a bit right here, Days of Unleavened Bread. This is a good time to be turning. Now, I don't want to spend this whole seven days telling you you should ought to be better, or you should ought to repent, or you should ought to quit sinning. Uh, You should ought to do it is not enough. We need to know how, we need to know what, and we need to be inspired to do so. You know, if you put a carrot in front of a donkey, he'll eat a whole lot better than if you just get behind him with a two-by-four and and pound on his behind. He's more likely to do it. Now, sometimes we have to be pounded over the head or in the behind or whatever, I understand that. But at the same time, we'll probably make better progress if we're encouraged and inspired to have a vision of what we need to be doing, who we are, why we are, what the purpose is. Then you can move forward. It's without vision that the people perish. Hosea 4, 6, I think. For lack of vision, the people perish. So, my purpose here is to help us increase our vision, our overall understanding of what God is doing, how, why, where, when, and what. And if we can get a clearer, better view of that, it may help us to fit in and do our job a whole lot better and to move forward as opposed to, oh, well, 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 well you know, what, what. It's hard to, to do much when we're in that mode. Anyway, let's move on down here to verse 12 of Zechariah 1. The angel of the eternal answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long uh, will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against whom you've had indignation these threescore and ten years? (coughs) So here we have the seventy years brought up again. Jeremiah uh, said quite a little about it when he was telling them, you will go into captivity and then told them how long it would be. And then Daniel read Jeremiah and picked up on it right at the end of the 70 years that they had been in captivity and said, oh, I was reading in Jeremiah and this is about over. You've had your 70 years. And then he went on to tell what would happen, not so much then as in the latter days. And he told Daniel, that this is for way on down the road, for the latter days. He told him to seal it up, that it would be sealed until the time of the end. So that thing about the 70 years, that thing about what would happen to Jerusalem and building the walls and the abomination being set up had nothing to do with Antiochus Epiphanes and the pig blood on the altar back then. It had everything to do with the end time desolation okay and the 70 years then in which god's people would be released so that they could build the temple and build the walls of jerusalem is also in the end time as a part of daniel so when zechariah writes about it here he is cognizant of that and he's talking about the 70 years at the end has to be. How long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Jerusalem against which you've had indignation seventy years? Now I have said, and I believe it is, is correct, that the Church of God existed from about uh, 1930 to 2000, roughly, as seventy years just as the early first era of the church lasted from about 30 to about 100 A.D., about 70 years. And they were in the midst of Rome, the midst of Babylon, if you will, at that time. And at the end of about 70 years, I'm I'm speaking roughly here, uh, they disappeared. They fell apart. There was a great falling away. They had lost their first love and there was a great falling away in the church, so that after the death of John, it just basically disappeared. Gone. Now, is it ironic that here we existed about 70 years and then began to disappear? Herbert Armstrong began studying in 28, 1928, 27, right through that area, and then began to preach and teach a little bit in the Sardis era, apparently, And then he began the church, basically, in 1933. You count 70 years later, and you come to 2003. We'll get back to that. So, God had indignation 70 years. Why? Why? Because the church was in the midst of Babylon, and it was affected a great deal by the culture and society around it. And God gives us many warnings to come out of Babylon and be not partakers of it. But even the church got involved with that to some degree, with Mr. Armstrong going over and whining and dining different kings and prime ministers and so on. And maybe that was part of his job to do some, somewhat of a, I uh, nah, I don't know, I, I'm giving too much credit, I think. I think he was told in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 to go to all nations and proselyte and baptize people of all nations, to build a church. He was not commissioned to preach the gospel around the world as a witness and then the end would come. He died, the end didn't come. They were a quarter century later and it still hasn't come. I don't think it was necessary for him to go to all those kings and presidents and so on. I think we were getting off track in doing that from the commission that was actually given to the church. And with him being gone all the time, that was one of the things that led to part of the downfall of the church. Because he wasn't there to oversee and to keep things going in a spiritual way. They ought to be going. It got off into other things. Now, maybe God intended him to go to some of those kings and governors. I don't know. But it does not seem to fit the commission. You see it's important to focus and know what your particular job and commission is. If you don't know, how are you going to fulfill it? If you think you're this when you're that, I know a man right now that thinks he ought to be the one to set up the kingdom of God on earth. The strong arm of the Lord. I don't agree with him at all on that. I think he has a totally different function in that. But he doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to the Scriptures either. Now, until he focuses and understands what his job is, how can he accomplish it? Maybe we ought to have a little mercy and compassion instead of knocking him as much as we have. Because if he doesn't understand the Scripture, how can he do what he's supposed to do? He can't until you know. Just like you and I can't do whatever it is God wants us to do until we know what it is. And I hope He has mercy and compassion until we grasp and understand and get done what He wants us to do. Don't you? So, here we were, 70 years in Babylon. And it affected us. We were still going to the public schools and learning the New World Order junk. We were learning about Darwin and, and uh, evolution we were being dumbed down so that we could be peons to the new world order. We were having religion taken away from us. We were having morals taken away from us. They're ruining us. And we, the church, were part of that. That's why he says, come out of her, my people, and don't be partakers of her sins and her plagues. And I think we're going to see before we're done with this series here, that God not only intended us to come out mentally, but to literally get out, to get away from it. And I believe, as I sit here tonight, that ultimately He intends for us not to have jobs out in the world not to send our children to public schools, not to be involved with this world. And I think He is going to help us make a separation that will cause that to happen. I'll show it to you in Scripture. He's tired of us being influenced by this world. And I do believe we've brought too much of it here with us. Over the internet, through TVs, through CDs, through music, in a lot of ways. Foods. He told us to come out here and be separate and not be like them. He hates The culture of Satan the devil and the culture of this country is as close to Satan's thinking as Satan has been able to get mankind to accept. Because we are the leaders of the world in trash and immorality and bad music. We need to give it some serious thought during these days of unleavened bread. Now, I can rant and rave and scream for years and do very, very little good. But somewhere along the line, you people and I need to internalize these things we're reading in this book. And we need to do something about it. Just because we like something or it pleases us, does not mean that it is godly and right. Maybe our tastes are perverted. Maybe our likes and our desires are perverted. You know, when people like pop and they like white sugar and they like sweets all the time and they like white flour... They have perverted taste buds, homogenized milk, on and on it goes. They had that all their lives and they are perverted. And that has to be repented of and changed. Now, I grew up in a certain musical era, all of you did. And that tends to get in your emotions and in your feelings. And it becomes part of you and what you are. And God says we need to be transformed. Not be like the world. And if that's what we liked and that's what our emotions wanted, then we need to change that. Now, I personally grew up on Elvis Presley and... and. Uh, that's Domino and some of those people. Probably a few of their songs are okay. Ricky Nelson. But I liked that music. And it's all that my dad could do to keep it away from me. And as soon as he was gone, I'd turn it on. And it became part of me. And you know what? Now I have to divorce myself from that. I went to college and I learned about some better music and I learned to like it. Stayed with it for a while. Then I moved to Idaho and Wyoming. I started listening to country. And got where I liked it. It became part of me. And not all of it is bad. But a lot of it is. And if it stirs, Emotions and passions and wrong feelings and wrong desires, it's wrong. So we have to get rid of that which is ungodly, which causes the wrong kind of feelings inside us. We have to get rid of it. We say, oh God, when are you going to bless us? Well, maybe He'll bless us when we turn to Him with our whole hearts. Not just half-heartedly. I almost use a different word. What is it going to take for us? We have to change. When we first brought these things up, people started throwing away CDs and records and tapes. And then slowly, we drift back. And we imbibe of the culture of this world. God had, had indignation on us those essentially 70 years that the church existed in Babylon. And we were slowly being led. Herbert Armstrong tried to get us on better diets, he tried to get us on better music. He listened to good music. Some good music that is inspiring you don't even like because it's not what you grew up with, it's an acquired taste. Some classical music isn't good. It's discordant. It's Stravinsky. It's like scratching your fingernails on a blackboard. But there are some who wrote some really good music that's good and inspiring. Some of you don't like the Messiah because it goes uh, 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 a lot. And you don't understand that. It's foreign to you. Once you understand it, you can learn to love it. Believe it or not. Anyway. God had indignation on the church and was frustrated with it that whole time. So, he blew it apart sometime after 70 years or going up to that. It didn't last quite 70 years before he began to blow it apart, but It's now existed a little over 70 years. Uh, Part of that intact and part of it split apart, blown apart. But He intends us now. What does He say there in Isaiah 52? Verse 1. Awake! 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 Put on your strength, O Zion. Not your weakness, not your half assedness your strength. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Speaking to the church. For henceforth, henceforth there shall no more come to you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust. That is a violent act. Did you ever see a wet dog shake himself? You probably felt it when he did. Have you tried to shake dust off? (laughs) It doesn't shake as easy as water off a dog. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise and sit up, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bands of of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. We have been captivated by this world and its ways. And he tells us to shake it and break it loose. That requires a certain amount of ardor, of violence, to get it done. It doesn't come easy. Don't be conformed to this world, we're told there in Romans 12. But be you transformed. A transformation means a total change. Not a part change, not a little change, but a lot of change. Maybe we wouldn't complain and blame God so much for not blessing us when we think He might ought to if we truly grasped what it is that He wants of us. And what He says of us here. You know, it's serious business when you leave your house and your land and your father and your mother and your brothers and your sisters and your mate and your children. That is serious business. Those are not easy decisions. God expects wholeheartedness, absolute and total commitment to Him. Do I sound like Jim Jones? I hope I sound more like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They wrote some pretty stiff things in here, didn't they? God is not interested in half-heartedness, brethren. He's not interested in half a transformation. He's not interested in a little bit of change. He's not interested in you and me being a little better than we were a a week ago or six years ago. He wants everything. Everything. All of us. Or all of each of us. Not part of us. You think when Christ gets married, He'll say, well, I'll take half of you. I'll I'll settle for that. Uh, But we'll let the world have a fourth of you and the devil another fourth. And if there's anything left over after 100%, I guess Joe down the street can have the rest of you. He's not interested in that kind of a bride. He wants absolute faithfulness and trust and love, and commitment. Because He's going to use His bride to live with and cherish for eternity and to manage His children and His kingdom with Him for eternity. That's a long, long time. I don't know how many... Billions of years it would take before he got tired of the ho-hum, lackadaisical, oh, yeah, okay, dear, attitude. How long do you go before you get upset with that? My wife can't go very long, I've learned, with me only half listening to her. Yeah, okay. What would I say? Uh She not go for that. That gets old with her real fast. I've gotten where if I'm reading or sitting at the computer or whatever and she comes in the room, I know that if I don't turn around and get my attention on her and listen to what she has to say, she's going to get up and walk out of the room. You must not have wanted to hear what I had to say because you're only paying half attention if, if that to me. Of course, it irritates me a little bit. You know, I was listening to you. Well, no, not fully I wasn't. But she gets my attention that way. Now, when she comes in my room, sits in the chair there, I usually turn around pretty quick, see what she has to say. Turn around and look at her. Now, am I being a mouse by doing that? No. She has something she would like to say. She wants to communicate with me. And she would like to know that I actually hear it. Because a lot of times I don't. Be, you women have probably never experienced that, I suppose. Because you're prob- your husbands probably are totally attentive to everything you say, right? I, I suspect that's probably true, huh? And I'm sure that they, your wives, probably all you have to do is look toward the kitchen and they jump up and say, I'm going to fix you something nice that you want. You probably only have to make a suggestion and know that she's going to work for three days getting that done for you because she knew that you brought it up as an idea or a thought. Men or women, we're not quite as responsive to each other as we Really ought to be, and don't pay enough attention to one another. Well, Christ doesn't want that half-heartedness, that whatever, whatever. It's not a good sound in His ears. You don't like that. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Not mm. male or female. He doesn't want mm, for the next 16 billion years. They get awful old. What if he heard whatever from 144,000 wives for a while? Yeah, whatever. I'd like you to go over to Asia and take care of this problem we got over there. Mm. That's a real way to run a kingdom, ain't it? <laughs> I'll make a little bit of light of it, but it's serious business. He wants our wholehearted attention. When he marries us, he wants all of of us. Not just half or 60% or 70% or 99% for the first month and then 83 and then 77 and then, you know, down to 33 and divorce. That's not what he's after. Wake up. Shake it off. Now, we were back here, and I'm out of time. Um, well, that's a good place to stop, I think, uh, for tonight. We're just addressing that 70 years here in Zechariah and, and what it means for the end time, So, I don't want to keep you too long. We'll pick it up again tomorrow afternoon. if I live that long, and, and uh, things work well. It's God's will. So thank you for coming. We'll see you tomorrow at ten thirty for the first service and then a nice potluck and an afternoon nap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh no, wait a minute, I'm sorry. Tomorrow's the weekly Sabbath. We meet at twelve. Shook you up though, didn't I?